Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good week, wherever you may be, whatever day you may be consuming this. It is Tuesday morning when I am broadcasting. It looks cold and sunny out. March in like a lion yesterday, so I don't know what that means going forward. I never know these weather things, other than when you look out the window, when it looks cold, put a coat on. It's about all I need to know. There is spring training baseball being played down in Florida and in Arizona. That's fantastic to see. It is always great when you turn on the TV and you see green grass and blue skies, and it's just a sign that spring is coming, and that gives us all hope. We got some Syracuse basketball to discuss after last night. An improbable, can I call it improbable, win over North Carolina? But I'm going to start with J.J. Watt and his decision to go to Arizona. And it, I, I wanted J.J. Watt. I was on this train before he was released from the Texans. I thought that Brandon Bean needed to make a move to get J.J. Watt. And I, I still believe Brandon Bean needs to make a move to get a player like J.J. Watt. And I don't know where you do that. I don't know how you do that. The Bills don't have a pass rush. They need to get better in that department. They need to improve their front seven dramatically. That was the weakest part of the football team last year. And amazingly, it's where they spend most of their draft and financial resources. So it's been a bad formula so far for Brandon Bean. A guy who's done a lot of things right has not done right, in my opinion, at the front seven. And J.J. Watt, I thought, would have cured a lot of ills. He put him out there. He's a guy that the offense needs to make sure they know where he is. They're going to account for him. They're going to double-team him. According to Pro Football Focus, he had the highest percentage of double-teams last year of any player in the National Football League. So you look at that and you think, you know, this guy's still a well-respected player. Now he goes out to Arizona where he and Caldwell, he and will become part of a huge defensive line. He will be one of the premier players on the Arizona Cardinals. Now, he had said that he was all about the rings and trying to get – I don't think the Cardinals are close to a ring. I like Kyler Murray. I think he's got great potential. I'm not sure about Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury, easy for me to say. I'm not sure about him as an NFL head coach. He's got some good ideas. I think his offense could be interesting, but overall – I haven't been impressed for the first couple of years of his NFL coaching career. Maybe they take a big step forward this year. We'll see. I'm not sure that the Texans have any more Pro Bowl players they can give them to get help get them better. But J.J. going to Arizona, and it was interesting to me to see the Twitter reaction here in Western New York. Bills fans, very upset that J.J. Watt didn't go to Buffalo looked at the $31 million, 23 guaranteed that Watt got and thought, nope, not signing him for that. That's way too much money. And I always find it funny when fans get cheap with money, when, when they don't want to spend the owner's money. Usually fans are all about spending the owner's money. The Pagulas got it. They got billions. Spend the money. You know, the Pagulas can do whatever they want. They, they've got so much money. You hear that a lot. But when it comes down to it, with the salary cap, you've got to be fiscally responsible. And frankly, 
Here's where I think Brandon Bean has fallen short. I don't think he's been fiscally responsible in the front seven of the Buffalo Bills. You look at how much money he spent on poor players, frankly. Quentin Jefferson, $8 million this year to play very average on the defensive line. Vernon Butler, below average player, $7.8 million. Mario Addison had a few moments last year, but $10.1 million? And you're telling me you wouldn't spend 13 or 14 million a year for JJ Watt? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You take it a step further. Last year, Trent Murphy was inactive the most of the second half of the season. You get seven and a half million dollars. Starla Tulale will come back this year at a price tag of $7.6 million. Many people have questioned that contract. You look at AJ Klein at, at the linebacker position. He had a few good games last year. $6 million for A.J. Klein. Anyone know who Tyler Matakavich is? He made 3.7 last year for being a special teams guy. Brandon Bean spent a lot of money defensively. He's also spent draft resources. Let's not forget number one pick at Oliver, who's been nothing short of average over his first two years. Number two pick last year, A.J. Epinenza. Inactive early on because he wasn't ready to play. Late made some plays, but this is a project that I don't know that ever gets there. So you look at all of these resources that have been spent on the front seven, and how is that the weakest part of the line? Defensively, you're looking at four of the five of the top ten paid Buffalo Bills are guys who reside on the defensive line, and yet that's the weakest part of your team? That's a poor job by Brandon Bean. So while Bills fans are upset that J.J. Watt went to Arizona, I think the real place they should be upset with is where their GM has failed them on the defensive line. And and, and Sean McDermott, his philosophy is going to play into this. Sean McDermott is a guy who wants to rotate defensive line players. He wants to have two of everything. He's like Noah's Ark. He wants to have two defensive ends on each side, two tackles, for each position, he wants to rotate and keep guys fresh. It's his ideology. It's worked for him. It's gotten him to this point, and he's become a very successful NFL head coach. These resources that Brandon Bean spent were to satisfy the head coach. Unfortunately, the job spending these resources has not been done well. I mean, think of the players I've mentioned. Jefferson, Butler, Addison, Murphy, Latula Oliver, Epinenza, Klein, Medikevich. We're talking about guys who make up high draft picks and somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 million in salary. How many of those guys, if they weren't on the Bills team this year, would be a huge loss? Maybe Ed Oliver, assuming he takes another step forward. This is a big year for Ed Oliver. Similar to Tremaine Edmonds, the Bills after this year, this coming year, we'll have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to pick up the fifth-year option on Ed Oliver. At this point, I don't think you do. Have you seen enough out of Ed Oliver to think that he's going to grow into a longtime starting defensive tackle in the National Football League? Look, when he came out of Houston, Oliver was undersized, very quick, tenacious, had a lot of things going for him. And the comp was Aaron Donald. And that's one of those things that you got to stay away from because 
Aaron Donald's a fluke. Can we call it that? Nobody Aaron Donald's size has ever done what Aaron Donald does. Nobody has ever been able to be as successful at the size Aaron Donald plays at as he is. He's one of the great players in the history of the game, frankly. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame about 38 seconds after he decides to hang up his spikes. He's that good at that size. So when you see a kid coming out of college and you think, this guy reminds me of that guy. Well, how many other players like that guy are there? It's almost like you try to find a player who reminds you of Steph Curry. Steph Curry is a very unique basketball player. Now, Trey White, he is a guy, not Trey White. The kid, Trey Young, from the Atlanta Hawks, is a Steph Curry clone. He has basically been able to do it. But the next guy that comes out, I'm not banking on him doing it. Just because Trey Young could be a similar player to Steph Curry. I don't think there's going to be another one. And I don't think there's going to be another Aaron Donald anytime soon. And I know for sure, Ed Oliver is not that guy. Look, he's a nice player. He's a solid defensive tackle who gets beat up in the run game because he's undersized, isn't effective enough in the pass game because he's not able to beat double teams very easily. His quickness and his abilities haven't made up for his lack of size yet. Now, it's not to say it can't happen. This could be a huge year for him. If Starlo Tudelé comes back and frees him up a little bit, maybe it's a different story. Right now, it's not bad. And, and the other guys, Jefferson, Butler, and Addison, to me, you got to look at them when you talk about salary cap casualties. All three of them, because they're not worth what they're getting paid. But I don't see it happening because McDermott wants depth on that defensive line. Depth is a great thing when that depth is quality. When that depth isn't quality, in this case it's not, it's a waste of resources. You're better off spending those resources elsewhere. Now, there's other things the Bills can do to free up money, and I've mentioned a few things. People are saying, well, now shift your focus to Matt Milano, and I love Matt Milano. I think he's a very good football player. I wouldn't do that, not at the price that the Bills would have to pay. Matt Milano is a good player who's not a difference maker. This team needs to get better. By investing your resources into a guy who's already here, you are at best staying the same. Where does the improvement come from? I would say goodbye to Matt Milano and expect to replace him either in free agency or in the draft and look to improve the linebacker position beyond him. I mentioned A.J. Klein. He was solid last year in a few games. He was also very poor in a few games. He's somewhere between average and below average. But here's the thing. For $6 million, you could do much better than A.J. Klein do better than Tyler Medikevich at 3.7 on special teams. The Bills have some offensive cap money that they can get rid of, too. John Brown's the most obvious. John Brown will be making $9.5 million this year should the Bills continue on with his contract. Now, the Bills could restructure that deal, or they could move on from it. The emergence of Gabriel Davis has made it more possible that the Bills can move on from him. Also, the fact that John Brown at this point is a third wide receiver to Cole Beasley and Stefan Diggs at best. That's a ton of money to pay 
for that guy. There's only a $1.6 million dead cap hit if the Bills were to release John Brown. So I would expect that to happen. That would free up about $8 million. And Mitch Morse is another possibility. Morris is a guy who last year, remember, was a healthy scratch and was benched because John Feliciano got the start at center when Feliciano came back. Now, I'm not sure that the Bills are ready to commit to Feliciano and pay him because he's also a free agent and would need to be paid to come back. But if they do, I could see the possibility that Feliciano gets the money. You end up moving on from Mitch Morse, $10.3 million if he stays, $5.5 million dead cap hit if he goes, and you look at bringing in another guard or you hope that Cody Ford can finally develop into the guard that he was drafted to become. All in all, there is plenty of cap wiggle room. Can I say it that way? Wiggle room that the Bills could use to improve this team. But this is a season, this is an offseason that Brandon Bean needs to be better last year frankly i don't think he was very good i I don't think what he did last year outside of stefan diggs was very effective in improving this team stefan diggs was a home run but you gave up a number one pick and a number four to get him you overpaid in some people's eyes to get diggs and i don't have a problem with that because diggs is the right player for your team and for the situation, and it worked out tremendously. Who's to say if they stayed where they were and drafted Chase Claypool, the guy who went to Minnesota, who was a very good player this year as a rookie, who's to say that would have worked out the same? Obviously, the Bills now are an offensive football team, but defensively, the front seven, that's Brandon Bean's task at hand, and he failed yesterday, in my opinion, by not getting J.J. Watt. I think that that was a big miss, and I think as we go through the offseason, that $31 million deal is going to look a lot better in hindsight than it does right now. Many people, I think, will be surprised at what players will get who aren't close to the player that J.J. Watt is. So certainly always good to talk about the Bills, the offseason, A lot of work to be done. I'm not sure where the work comes from, and I'm not sure if the Bills will improve this year. But if you're going to improve, maybe it's time to look at the other side of the ball for the resources. If you're going to be an offensive team, instead of spending all those resources on a bad defensive line, go get a big-time tight end. Go get a big-time starting guard. Improve your offensive line. Improve your running game improve your passing game with the tight end position, maybe reallocate those resources and it's a better strategy. You figure you're trying to improve your defense, but you can't, well, improve the offense, outscore teams. It's basically what the Bills did this year anyway. So maybe it's time to shift philosophies, although I think as long as Sean McDermott is the head coach, I don't see that happening. I find it hard to believe that, he would allow, and I don't know if allow is the right word, if he would sign off on Brandon Bean doing that. But there's an awful lot of wasted resources on the defensive side of the football for the Buffalo Bills. If you're a better offensive team, why not reallocate those uh, those resources to the other side of the ball? 
Syracuse basketball got an improbable win. Last night, as I watched this game, normally I have a pretty good idea of how to explain a win or a loss. Georgia Tech on Saturday. Syracuse got out-rebounded yet again, 46-31. to Wasn't close. They got crushed in the paint. Even with the emergence of Jesse Edwards in the middle, Syracuse was weak in the paint. And they lost a road game to a better team. Pretty concise. It could explain that away. Alan Griffin's 26 points kept them in the game Saturday. Last night, I don't know what happened. Syracuse was out-rebounded 53-33. to North Carolina is a very big physical team. As big and physical as any team in the ACC. How North Carolina has the low, low quality of guards that they have I have no idea. Roy Williams won his 900th game over the weekend. He's a great coach, Hall of Fame coach. But much like another older Hall of Fame coach who's one of the greatest coaches of all time, who he was coaching against last night, I think Roy Williams is done. Last year, I blamed the fact that they weren't good on the Cole Anthony's selfish play and reluctance to be a team player maybe i was wrong about that cole if you're listening my bad it's just one of those things that what do you you're north carolina you don't have guards who can penetrate or shoot what is going on and your bigs are good but not great i mean how many bigs for carolina do you look at and think Man, if Syracuse had that guy, that would be a real difference maker. I don't, I don't see that guy. I don't know what Carolina's been doing and why they're a bubble team like Syracuse is the fact that they haven't recruited well. And forced with a less talented roster, Roy Williams isn't coaching that well. Uh, what are you doing? What is your system? How do you win games? It used to be trademark in-your-face man-to-man defense. Didn't see that last night. Used to be you could shoot it if you left guys open or you had a guard who could penetrate and make others better. You got all these bigs who can catch and finish, but yet nobody can penetrate? Strange. Very strange. Syracuse gets away with a one with a two-point win and a game that, frankly, it shouldn't have been that close. Jim Beheim loves to take the ball, the air out of the ball with about four minutes to go if he's just sitting on the lead. And invariably, it makes the end of games far more interesting than they need to be. His team stops playing. They get lackadaisical. They create it. They, they have a bad turnover or two. Things happen. And next thing you know, you're holding on for dear life. That was last night yet again. You had a great performance by Kadari Richmond. He had 10 assists, 6 points, 4 steals. Gets hurt late in the game. And Joe Girard now has to come off the bench where he's been glued to the bench. Joe Girard's time at Syracuse may not be over. But I'll tell you what. If this kid still has confidence left after the way he's been treated by the head coach, I, I don't know how he does. And I give him a lot of credit if he still does. It's just every time he makes a bad play, he gets taken out of the game. This is a guy who last year was your starting point guard as a freshman trying to learn the position and did a pretty good job. Alan Griffin last night gets only about 22 minutes 
in the game. 23. Here's a guy who had 26 points on Saturday. He sits for most of the second half. Now, Jesse Edwards has been a revelation these last couple games. From Amsterdam, the Netherlands, not New York. This kid is long and skilled. He's got good feet. His hands aren't strong enough yet to really battle the way they need to be. But he can finish. He's got good footwork for a big. And he's long. And yet, up until Saturday, we'd see him for a few minutes in the cupcake season, the early games. That's about it. Jim Beheim doesn't develop bigs anymore. This used to be something that he was famous for. A guy like Otis Hill who was a freshman and sophomore. You look at him like, this guy will never get him. And then as a junior and senior, you see, wow, he can really play. Rick Jackson, similarly. There were a lot of bigs who came through the program who didn't contribute right away, but got better as time went on. Well, Jim Beheim stopped playing bigs other than Brahma Sidibe a few years ago. John Paul Jacques has gotten a few minutes here and there. Up until recently, we haven't seen anything of Jesse Edwards. Frank Anselm, another big who's a freshman, hasn't been dusted off in a long time. But Edwards' emergence shows that there is some talent on this bench. And Beheim's reluctance to use it is another fact that in this day and age of, of basketball, I think he needs to evolve. You need to develop your young players. There's going to be a time when injuries happen, and if you don't have somebody to step in, you're not prepared. And they played all year with Marek Dolajai as a five. He's not a five. Marek's a four, and he's a talented four. And Quincy Gurrier is a small four or a three. You're behind the eight ball without Brahma Sidibe. And I get that was plan A. But it takes you to this point in the season, 20 games in, 22 games in, to figure out that you've got a guy who can be useful. And Beheim staunchly, after the game last night, said, well, he's just not ready. Okay, he's not ready, but he's better than anything else you have. Why not give him an opportunity? How do you know what you have unless you try to find something out? And I know Beheim's famous. We see him in practice every day. And if guys don't play in practice, how can we play him in games? Well, you've got to find out your players. You've got to have a pulse for your team. And I don't think Jim Beheim has a very good pulse on this team. And I think that's where the Hall of Famer has slipped a little bit. I think it used to be when he recruited much better that he knew the players he was dealing with and those players he let play into mistakes because the margin for error is smaller now. The mistakes come more frequently and Beheim simply isn't dealing with it well. You know, Kadari Richmond last night got 31 minutes and that's great. He needs time. But when you look at what Syracuse has done for Joe Girard to try to come in after Kadari got hurt with about a minute and a half to go, after sitting for 18 and a half minutes, now you're to be the primary ball handler in a game where you're getting down to a one-possession game. It's a big ask. And I get it that Girard 
has had that position all year and most of last year, but it's still, you're coming in cold. And the last time you made a turnover, you got yanked after a minute. So it's, it's a tough ask to me that you're putting on a young kid. And, and look, last night's game, it's, it's inexplicable that Syracuse won. Gurrier hobbling on his one leg, knee injury, bump knees at the end of the Georgia Tech game. He had 18 and six. He was really good in the second half against a big front line, against the physical front line. Still settles for the three a little bit too much. Last night took five of them. Five's not a ton. I'd much prefer that to be two or three because if he's at the three line, he's not in position to potentially get an offensive rebound. You look at what happened at the end of the game with injuries now to Quincy Gurrier. He went out. He did come back. I think he'll be able to go against Clemson tomorrow night. And Kadari Richmond, I don't know that he'll be able to come back. When he got hurt, he immediately waved over to the bench, come get me, I need a sub. They iced his knee, and he was done for the game. Now, it was only a minute and a half left in the game, so it wasn't a huge deal last night. But that means tomorrow against Clemson, which is a game that would be or could be a quad one win for the Orange, something they need desperately. They're back on the bubble amazingly. They're the next four out, so they're in the final eight out or first eight out right now, if you were to look at it that way. They've got Clemson. That's an opportunity. They've got the ACC tournament, get a couple wins there. Remember last year they had their first win ever in the ACC tournament in a round one game against North Carolina. I don't think this team can get it done. I don't think they can be a team that ends up in the tournament, but it's still there for them with a win on Wednesday against Clemson. Just how can you anticipate that win? If Kadari Richmond can't go or can only go limited minutes, that means you're bringing Gerard back into the lineup for pretty much a full game. And right now, Gerard's confidence is shot, shattered. This young man is hanging his head. The coach hasn't given him any reason to believe in himself. He hasn't given him any reason to think he's going to be able to play through some of the bumps that he's going through. It's a sophomore slump. It is a tough lesson for a guy who scored 5,000 points in high school. There's a lot of things going on here. And I don't know what Jim Beheim is doing to help Joe Girard through this tough time, or Alan Griffin for that matter. Because Alan Griffin last night missed most of the second half, in part because Jesse Edwards played pretty well before fouling out, in part because Alan Griffin didn't have a good game last night. Scored four points. They were at the end of the game. He only took a couple shots. So it's tough to get rhythm. And a lot of times, Alan Griffin, early on, if he doesn't hit a shot, he tends to struggle. So instead of building guys up, running plays for them, trying to get them in the flow, I think right now the coach is doing a better job of reacting by giving a quick hook. You'll see a bad play defensively by Griffin, and you see Beheim looking down the bench, doing one of those. Get in there. Go get him. It's tough, and and again, this team likely 
will be together next year in some fashion because Buddy Beheim's going nowhere. I don't believe Quincy Guerrier will go pro after this year. Marek may come back for a fifth year because of the COVID situation. Kadari Richmond, I don't think, goes anywhere. I hope not. But you think of Gerard and Alan Griffin. If I'm those guys, how are you not thinking of transfer? Griffin transferred to Syracuse this year. You think this year is gone like he wanted it to? You think this has been a better year for him? Gerard, he's got two years left, or three actually, because of the COVID year. So if you think about him, the chance to go somewhere and you know re- rebuild his career, it'd be enticing. And if Kadari and Buddy are back, Gerard's got the handwriting on the wall. He's the third guard in that situation. It's not a good place to be. So you look at everything that's going on. I think the next couple games are going to be very important for a few players. I think that the team could somehow sneak in, and I can't believe I'm saying that, because if they get a win against Clemson, I think they are in the next, the first four out. If that's the case and they go down to the ACC tournament and get a couple wins there, I think they're in. I think they need to win three games in a row to get there. I don't think they can do it because I don't think this team is good enough, and I certainly don't think it's coached well enough at this point to get it done. Jim Beheim's forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. But Jim Beheim has never been somebody who – embraces the people side of the coaching business. It's just not who he is. It's just not his personality. He's never had to. He's had players good enough that by leaving them alone, they achieve. It's not the case anymore. He doesn't have the five stars. He's got three stars. And these guys need to get better. And he hasn't been able to develop them. And if you look at this team from a development standpoint, has Buddy Beheim improved this year over last I'd say no. He's at best the same player. Quincy Guerrier, I do believe he has improved. He's become a sophomore that's a better player than he was as a freshman. Marek Dolajai is the same good player. Alan Griffin, I think, based on what he did at Illinois last year, I think he is the same player, but he's gotten less opportunities. And as the season's gone on, I feel he's regressed. Joe Girard's regressed greatly. Dari Richmond, the freshman, has done a great job. So who's improved this year? Who's Who do you look at other than Quincy Gurrier and say, see, that's where the coaching staff did a great job with that kid. They've developed him. I think that's a big problem with Syracuse basketball. And I know it's not just the head coach. There was a lot of other assistants who were working to develop these kids as well. The development isn't showing up on game nights, and that's a problem. So SU somehow, somehow still alive. I'm not thinking they're going to get in, but they have the the possibility to get in. I had to laugh over the weekend. The Sabres lost back-to-back three-to-nothing games to Philly, and I'm not laughing because the Sabres lost. I, I, I don't find that funny at all. What I find funny is the reaction, again, of the fans that, This is the low point. This is the low point? Finally, we bottomed out with this franchise? The the franchise that since the Pagulas have bought it have never made the playoffs? We finally hit the low mark. 
six coaches, four GMs in 10 years, and now we've hit the low point. We've got to do something. Fire the coach. Fire, fire Ralph Kruger. He's got to go. Okay, he's in his second year. That's what they do every two years. Time for a new coach. Kevin Adams, the new GM, has got to do something. Now, remember, Kevin Adams was appointed GM this summer after an extensive search that looked down the hallway. I mean, you fired Jason Botro. You're going to hire a new GM. You look down, hey, Kevin's door's open. I wonder if he'd be the GM. Kevin, could you come in here? Uh, Wondering if you want to be GM. You do? Oh, cool. All right. We got a GM. We'll just promote the ticket guy. Now, look, Kevin Adams is more than a ticket guy. I get it. But this is the funny thing to me is you lose three games in a row, back-to-back shutouts. You're just not playing with any emotion, any heart. This is a listless, lifeless team. It's talent. Talent is so low that you can't expect. I, I, going into this year, I, my question was, what's different? You brought in Taylor Hall. You brought in Eric Stahl. Okay. And, and that's going to be enough to get you over the hump? You look at this team, they've got four regulation wins so far. Now, there's a lot of time left in this season. There is a ton of games left in this season. However, this is a team right now that would get the number one overall pick, which that'd be great because last time they did it, they took Rasmus Stalin. He's a can't-miss defenseman who somehow has become a miss because the Sabres organization has screwed him up so badly. He's become a very average NHL player. Well, even if they had the number two pick, they took Jack Eichel. Jack's got three goals this year. That's not very good. And and Jack is playing like a lot of other players, listless, emotionless. He's beaten down by this. I, I never think it's a good idea to trade your best player when you're a bad team to get better. I frankly don't think that Kevin Adams and the Sabres scouting department has what it takes to build upon getting guys back, draft picks. You trade Eichel, you get a bunch of young players and draft picks. What's Where do you have the confidence in Kevin Adams that he's going to make that into them doing the right thing, selecting the right players? Who's the last player that the Sabres have picked somewhere in the middle of the draft or somewhere down below, and all of a sudden he's become a standout. I mean, I guess Victor Olofsson to an extent, but nothing was really expected of Victor Olofsson. He was a guy who only could score in a power play. Now he's one of their best players. Is that a good thing? I guess to an extent it is, but your good players have to play to their ability and they're not. And, you know, the whole Jeff Skinner healthy scratch thing, people are freaking out over Jeff Skinner being a healthy scratch because they think he's a 40-goal scorer because he scored 40 his first year at Buffalo. He doesn't have a goal. He doesn't have anything. This guy is making $9 million and not producing. I don't like to be cold, but this is a production-based business. You don't get paid $9 million and not produce and not have to deal with repercussions. And for Skinner's agent and Skinner to be upset about getting benched, look in the mirror, dude. How can you justify playing? 
And there's guys like Paige Thompson, who the Sabres have hung on to because they made a bad trade with Ryan O'Reilly, and he was the centerpiece of that trade coming back. You know what? It's time to cut your losses. I don't know what the Pagulas could do at this point to resurrect this franchise. Frankly, they are as big a part of the problem as anything else. The Pagulas have one successful business at this point, the Buffalo Bills. That's it. They can't run restaurants because of the pandemic. The oil and gas production has ceased. Their hotels have been shut down because of the pandemic. They have struggled mightily, but nothing struggles more than the Sabres. Now, in a Pagula note, they did reach an agreement to sell the 716 bar that is next to Harbor Center. The bar that they owned that was very crowded on Sabre game nights. Southern Tier Brewing is going to put a brew pub in there. I think it's a great idea if fans are going to be back in the building, which reportedly is going to happen soon. And here's my question. If you're a Sabre fan, why would you spend money to go to a game like this? Now, if you're a fan of, say, the Islanders or the Devils or the Flyers, I get it. Go see your team play. Go see them get an easy win. But if you're a Sabre fan, you're going to spend $150 on a ticket to go see this crap? I, I just can't fathom it. I don't like telling people how to spend their money. But why would you do that? And then why would you get upset after? If you spend the money to go to see these games, you get what you're paying for. A terrible hockey team. A bad organization. I don't know what becomes of the Sabres, but I don't think this is the low point. I don't think the low point has come yet, frankly. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better because eventually it's going to get so bad that the Sabres are going to have to do something like sell the team. It's crazy to me that how bad this has been. So if you think it's a low point, sorry, not yet. From low points to high points, it was great yesterday turning on the TV and seeing baseball being played. And I did that. I watched a little bit of the White Sox and the Angels. Got to see Otani and Pujols and Trout all get hits in the first inning. Got to see Pittsburgh's Danny Mendick starting at shortstop. But more importantly, got to hear the sound of the bat on the ball. Got to hear the sounds of the ballpark. See the green grass. And the fact that it's going on now means that the the players have won and that they're going to play 162 games this year. The owners did not want that. They did not want to have to pay full salaries. They wanted a much shorter season because of the lack of fans. They felt that they could strong arm the Players Association into that. Players Association stood by their stood by themselves and said, no, we're playing 162. And the fact that it's going to happen gets things a little bit closer to normal. Last year's season, 60-game year, it was a tease. And, and yes, it was still good baseball and it was still baseball. But it's not the same. And 162 means something in baseball. If you eventually want to shorten it to 154 or bring it back to the 150s, I could deal with that. 162 may be too many, but it's what the game has been built on. 
people freaked out when Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's home run record because it's a numbers game. We always compare the numbers. Well, if you're not going to stay at 162, the numbers go out the window anyway. We always judge everything based on 162. I'm so glad that this year is going to be the same. And, and to let you know that baseball is back, I flipped over to a New York talk show yesterday after watching a little bit of baseball. And Jameson Tyone, the Yankees, who, who the Yankees acquired from the Pirates this offseason, pitched a good inning yesterday in his spring training debut. One good inning. And the debate on the New York talk show was, is Tyone going to be the Yankees' number two starter behind Garrett Cole? Or is it going to be Corey Kluber or Severino when he comes back? So we're already there. We're already one inning in. We're debating whether a guy's a number two, a number three, or a number four. Yeah, baseball's back. It's good. It's very good. You know what else is back? And this is one that I go both ways on a little bit. High school football is back in this area. Yesterday, in the wind, in the snow, was the first day for high school football practice. Very short, five- to six-week season, condensed season. I'm very happy for all the seniors who get to play their senior year. You're a football player. You get to play your senior year. Good for you. I do have a fear, though. High school football is a very strenuous sport. Traditionally, the first week of practice is a conditioning week in helmets and shorts. No hitting going on. Second week, you put the pads on, you get a little light hitting. Third week, you get some scrimmages in, and then the fourth week is the first game. This week, this year, there's going to be about two weeks total of practice time. I understand that the state in Section 5 and the New York State Public High School Athletic Association are trying to give the kids the opportunity to play. I just hope that safety protocols that they're throwing out the window aren't going to cost anyone anything severely. How are the kids going to be in shape? Have they been working out all year? And what if you're a multi-sport kid? Basketball is winding down. Regular season ends this week. Sectionals begin this weekend. If you're a basketball player, does that mean you can't play football or you join the team late and miss a week of practice while you try to get ready? And, and going from football to basketball, different muscles, different different stresses on your body. I, I just don't understand how this is going to work. And, and again, I love high school football. Lucky enough to have been part of broadcasting games for Spectrum over the last couple of years. Absolutely love it. And I think it's one of those things that if you're a part of it, you know what I'm talking about. It is a special, special sport. Kids give their all. They are so invested in high school football. It's, it's, it's a different sport, and I love it for that. I just worry about the safety of the kids. Hopefully it's not an issue. But you're putting a lot of kids who aren't going to be prepared in a situation where their bodies are going to be exposed to things I don't think their bodies are ready to take. I just don't know that it's smart. Hopefully I'm dead wrong. Certainly excited for the kids that they get the opportunity. I just wish the state would have made it 
so that it's a longer season to give the kids the extra week of conditioning that I think they probably need. One last thing. A week ago, right about this time, I was talking about Tiger Woods and how he sounded at the Genesis Open. And about the time I was talking about it, Tiger was involved in a very serious car accident, shattered his ankle, broken fibula, tibula, compound fracture, just his legs a mess. And while it's sad to see Tiger Woods possibly go out this way, I personally don't care about Tiger Woods, the golfer, at this point. He has been through so much. Five back surgeries, knee surgeries, now ankle and leg surgeries. To expect him or hope that he can come back and play golf at some point, to me, other than playing with his son, maybe in that father-son challenge down in Orlando that they have every year, I don't really care to see Tiger Woods on the golf course anymore. I'd much rather see Tiger Woods be a happy individual. He's given us a lot, if you think about it. His winning brought joy to millions. The, the win at Augusta last year was something that, or two years ago now, was something that we thought we'd probably never see again, and yet we did. I'm about cherishing those memories and hoping for the best for the man because at this point, the golfer – it won't be the same. Michael Jordan was a wizard and was a good player. I don't ever think of Michael Jordan the wizard in any time I think of Michael Jordan. And all it did is got you an opportunity to see him one more time. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't the guy who won the rings. It wasn't the guy who led the league in scoring all those times. It was a guy who could but didn't because he was old and done. Tigers now... Not old yet, but he's done. And I hope for his sake, for his family's sake, he has a life that's happy. And if it includes golf, great. But that golf should be fun golf, not competitive golf. Go out there and enjoy playing against your son. Try to continue to beat your son and get yourself healthy. He wasn't healthy before this. He's certainly not going to be healthy for a long time after it. The rehab, it's going to be months, if not year, before we see him out in public again. I just think that anyone who's trying to figure out when the golfer, Tiger Woods, comes back, you're being a little selfish. It's not about him, the golfer, anymore. It's about him, the person. So that's it for this week. Hope you all have a great week. Thanks for listening. Talk again next week, a one-year anniversary next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.